This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next, from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, a presentation by John Olson from Intel and John Ricard from International Rescue Committee entitled Public-Private Partnerships for Humanitarian Disaster Relief from the Conversations Network. Hello, this is Doug Kay, the Executive Director of the Conversations Network. And today I'm excited to bring you another session from the Disruption Management Seminar held at Stanford by the Center for Social Innovation, September 8, 2005. Created by the Stanford Graduate School of Business, the Center for Social Innovation builds and strengthens the capacity of individuals and organizations to develop innovative solutions to social problems. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Many of you remember this morning, uh, Lynn Fritz says that a lot of the research and a lot of the knowledge base about the needs in the humanitarian uh, relief work came from Dr. Anisha Thomas. She has personally uh, overseen as well as herself pursue many of the research and creation of systems that help many of the humanitarian relief organizations. So it's my pleasure to introduce her. She's going to lead us uh, as emceeing the following session in the afternoon. This is uh, Dr. Thomas, yes. We've explored many, many themes this morning. This afternoon, we're going to try and bring the themes together. This morning, you saw from a private sector perspective what certain companies are doing in order to prepare for disruptions. And you also heard from some experts in the humanitarian world about how emergency relief works and some of the protocols and the practices and some of the things that, some of the challenges they face, particularly with the private sector. This afternoon's session is about partnership, particularly partnership between the private sector and the humanitarian sector. This was a theme that had been developing for the last couple of years, and it is one of the platforms on which Fritz Institute builds its strategy. So we've been observing the dance of engagement between the private sector and the humanitarian sector. But the tsunami was really an inflection point. In the tsunami, every humanitarian organization was overwhelmed by the phone calls that they got from the private sector in every country, not only in the United States. When we went around as an organization to Banda Aceh and Sri Lanka and India after the tsunami and visited with various governments as well as humanitarian organizations, one of their biggest comments was how much interest there had been from the private sector to contribute to the tsunami. And the money also spoke. In the United States alone, $560 million, according to the Chamber of Commerce, was contributed by U.S. corporations to the tsunami relief efforts. However, after the tsunami, there was also a significant level of frustration on both sides, both on the side of the humanitarian sector who felt assaulted by all these offers and unable to sort of really be able to vet and validate them. You have to remember that in the humanitarian sector, the single most important currency is your reputation. Your reputation keeps you safe. 
your brand and your logo is what people recognize as a humanitarian organization when you go into fairly dangerous places. But your reputation is also what gives you the ability to raise money. And so you have to be fairly careful about the partnerships that you enter into. And so the humanitarian sector is justifiably cautious when it comes to this dance of engagement with the private sector. On the private sector side as well, there was a great deal of frustration because they were randomly making calls, opening the phone book, talking with various humanitarian organizations. Very often their phone calls were not returned. They didn't know who to call. And on both sides after the tsunami, there's a concerted effort to say, how can we bridge this divide? We realize that there's distrust on the side of the humanitarians, and the humanitarians realize that the private sector also has certain standards and certain ways that they want to operate, and they don't want to get into the business of humanitarian relief. They just want to be seen as doing good. So how do we bridge? <laughs> how do we? No, they want to leverage their competences, and they want to you know, work from the area of core competences. Traditionally, the only engagement that has existed between the private sector and the humanitarian sector has been the giving of money, the ad hoc giving of donations, and occasionally one-on-one -on -one partnerships for a period of time. And now people are really thinking about what kind of long-term models are possible. What are the different models of partnership? Because both sides understand that the value that each brings to the other, and both want to make friends and bridge that divide. And what we're seeing today are various models emerging. I'll talk about one or two, and the presentations this afternoon are about specific ones that exist and have worked. Because both sides realize that a partnership makes sense. Humanitarian organizations and multinational corporations span countries, cross borders, deal with complex problems, have to deal with the local global dynamic. They have a lot in common. They often have common stakeholders. There's a lot that they can learn from each other. But what is the optimal way in which they can engage? When you talk to the humanitarian organizations, they say there are three core factors. One is, as Lynn said at the beginning of the day, the engagement has to be before a disaster. It can't be during a disaster because our best people, as Randy said, are on the front line doing the best that they can to deal with the chaos and the dynamics of a disaster situation. Second, it has to be need-based. You know, humanitarian organizations struggle so hard, and you heard several stories about unsolicited donations that come in and use up valuable time and valuable resources to deal with. The private sector really needs to understand what is it that the humanitarian sector needs and how can that be provided in a way that doesn't distract them from their life-saving services. And third, this is something that Fritz Institute has realized over the last three or four years of research, that one area where the corporate sector can really make a difference is in the back room, not in the front line. The humanitarians are experts in the front line. Talk about food and nutrition and whether a community-based program is better than a one that's parachuted in. They have the numbers, they have the figures, and they've been doing it for years. Where they don't have resources and where they struggle for expertise is in the back rooms. And so this is one area, and then the two presentations you'll hear about today are about backroom partnerships, and I hope both presentations will talk about the pros and cons of the partnership so we can have an honest discussion about them.
we are working at the Fritz Institute to try and understand what are some of the things that corporations bring and that aid agencies bring. Aid agencies are all hurt. People who join aid agencies are people who are moved to help the world and feel a calling to do this kind of work most often. They're motivated by a personal connection and contribution and recognition. Corporations have to make a profit. They're bottom line oriented. We've talked all during this day about how clear it is to measure whether a corporation is doing well or not. But in marrying the two and in marrying the skills that they bring to each other, you can have better reputations, more satisfied employees, more understanding of new markets, better ways to save lives and alleviate suffering. Maybe, as you'll hear in the examples this afternoon, faster ways to get supplies there and increase ability to show impact because the corporate sector really understands measurement and metrics and perhaps improved operational efficiency. This is my last slide before I introduce the first set of speakers, so get ready, John and John. I thought I'd talk a little bit about the dimensions of partnership that we've observed in our research between humanitarian organizations and the private sector. One dimension is philanthropic to integrative. This is the dimension that James Austin talks about, where you can either give a one-time ad hoc gift, if you will, to a humanitarian organization of money or product, or go all the way into trying to integrate your operations and work at the level of core competences, where the core competences of the private sector are enhancing the core competences of the humanitarian partner. The partnership can be local or global. This morning we talked about some of the insurance risks of sending people from the private sector here to some of the disaster zones. What we often forget is many of the corporations that are in this room are global and have offices in India and Sri Lanka and Indonesia and South Africa and Nairobi. And they sometimes have different insurance requirements, but their employees on the ground understand the cultures in India and Sri Lanka and even in Indonesia, we saw some very good examples of local companies making a difference. Because at the end of the day, as you saw in New Orleans, as Lynn said this morning, we've seen in the tsunami, you saw in BAM, 90% of the life-saving assistance that happens in the first 48 hours are done by the locals. The third is whether it's direct or indirect. This afternoon, you will hear two presentations. One is about a direct partnership, that between TNT and the World Food Program. And the other one was about an intermediated partnership where Fritz Institute married the skills of Intel and Selectron with the needs of the International Rescue Committee. Whether it's a single company or a multi-company, we are seeing new models. Somebody mentioned the Business Roundtable earlier this morning. That's a multi-company initiative. The Disaster Response Network is a multi-company initiative to try and make a difference to humanitarian aid. Fritz Institute's Corporations for Humanity is a multi-company effort. And then finally, whether it's a single aid agency that's on the recipient end or whether it's multiple aid agencies. So with that, I'd like to introduce our first presenters. That's John and John, John Olson of Intel, and John Ricard of the International Rescue Committee. Thank you. So I'm John Olson from Intel Corporation, and it's certainly my pleasure to be here this afternoon. We're going to go ahead and uh, 
tag team. We're going to go back and forth a couple of times on our presentation. And I'm basically going to lead in with a little bit of an introduction, and then John's going to take and tell the, the story from the IRC perspective. And what we're really going to talk about today is the review of the experience that we had between the Fritz facilitated efforts, bringing myself and Jim Molson from uh, Selectron together with IRC, and talk about some of the supply chain improvements that we worked on together and collaboratively. And then at the end, I want to spend a little bit of time and make a little bit of a pitch and encourage you to think about getting involved. We often get asked to get involved, and Anisha did a good job talking to you about all the various levels of involvement that we can have. And it's easy to write a check and to hand out a few dollars. It's hard to commit your life to it, and there's a few people here that have done that. But we're going to ask you to all maybe think about making a small investment of your time and your experience, because collectively you can make a huge effort and a huge commitment to the ongoing need to help, I think, better the world. So. With that, I'm going to leave it to John to start talking uh, through the experience. Good afternoon as well. My uh, name is John Rickard. I'm with the International Rescue Committee, which is a U.S.-based aid agency. This was a wonderful opportunity for us. Fritz facilitating our meeting up with Olsen and Molson, as they became known. Um, <laughs> the dynamic duo in our midst. But why would we want to collaborate? Well, why would we want to work with private sector expertise when we're so different. As an aside, not, not part of the presentation, is that we are very different. The humanitarian operations and the corporate world. However, there are a great number of places where we are similar. And there are a number of lessons to be learned from both parties applicable to each other. And this was made very, very plain for us in our interactions with Fritz and people that they've pulled together, and certainly with these guys. So officially, what we wanted to do was gain impartial and affordable advice on industry best practices and technologies. So we knew that it's crucial to have a functioning supply chain. Let's look outside of our own world and what can be pulled in. That's officially. Unofficially, it was to gain a full commitment to process change from the IRC. I have to give a little bit of background on that. I have a couple of colleagues who may or may not agree. A good number of agencies such as mine have been built up over the years by what we call programmatic people. These are the guys who are running the different programs. They are not from operational support backgrounds. So now the senior management are solidly programmatic. And what I had failed to do, I, hate, I appreciate talking to an audience like this, of course we never fail, was to fully understand that I was totally wrong in assuming that my colleagues who had 10, 15, 20 years experience across the board understood what I was talking about when I said we need to improve the supply chain. Mistake. Big mistake. And what Olsen and Molson did was bring about that change in attitude. It was very important. So what we had was a recognition. There was time for change. There was recognition that our supply chain needed to be strengthened, to be beefed up. And as I point out there, not just desirable, for me it was desirable, but necessary. The climate within the organization at the time was open to some degree of change, but we've always got a but. There's a tendency to find the 25 reasons why we can't do something rather than the two reasons that we can. So we had to work through that. There was also a tendency to look at NGO-proven mechanisms, which at the time were based solidly on stockpiles of equipment and materials. So we were working 
away from there. Now, there's another one in that over the years, at the end of the day, we have very often achieved our aims in the field. So once everything is finished, we can very rapidly forget the pain and the frustration that our logistics and program staff on the ground went through to make it happen. So there's a hesitancy to prioritize meager resources into a backroom operation. So this is where Fritz arrived on the scene, and it's the first time that logistics was addressed at the chief executive level. So Lynn Fritz met with the president and the vice presidents and the senior directors of the IRC. Somebody coming in to talk about logistics. Very unusual in our world. So a combination of obvious commitment. This is why he swung the day. <laughs> it's one thing for me walking into the president trying to sell the need for strength in logistics, but when somebody like Lynn Fritz walks in, who has a commercial success documented on his resume, high-level academic and industrial involvement, he is a compelling advocate. You do tend to at least listen. So what the Fritz did for us was to pull in acknowledged experts within their fields to come in, assess the situation as far as our supply chain goes, see what they could best do and recommend, and take it from there. So we now are in a position to pull in people, as I note here, at very senior levels of corporate supply chain management who would normally not be within our reach. So you basically got the same buildup that we got coming into our uh, experience in New York with the IRC team. And so we had talked a lot about in a previous session called Crossroads where we bring together several of the humanitarian organizations with a few business partners. We talked a lot about metrics. And we had done a lot of work at Intel around score metrics or supply chain metrics. And I was really excited to come in and talk about reliability and their throughput time and how responsive they were to all the various customers and be able to compare our metrics against theirs and say, boy, let me show you some of our best known methods so that we can take a day out of your throughput time or get your quality indicators up a little bit better than they are today. We also had brought a lot of purchasing experience. Jim and myself have both done this for several years. And so we wanted to come in and talk about some strategic sourcing plans and how were they doing negotiations with their suppliers. And we'd had a lot of recent success with internet negotiations, dropping prices 20, 30% in an almost commodity-like field of transportation and logistics. We also had a lot of people behind us that we were ready to call to talk about this stockpiling situation. Because our general feeling was, I mean, there's a right time and there's a wrong time for it. And John didn't believe that it was necessarily the right time to do this stockpiling. It costs a lot of money, and you never know, can you get it in the right place at the right time? So we had a lot of people behind us ready to do a, a bunch of uh, modeling on forward positioning and replenishment, and then just to be able to apply any other basic supply chain best-known methods, because we both have a lot of experience in the high-tech field, which tends to do a lot of high-speed shipping, um, responding to emergencies, very demanding customers. Although it's very different, in a lot of ways it's still the same as what they experience in the humanitarian world. So that was our build-up, and we were pretty excited going into that. And as we got there, this is kind of what we found. Everything that John had told us and he told you was absolutely true. I mean, there, was, there was no question about it. But on top of that, it was pretty basic from our perspective. Now, granted, we come from a corporation that has 100,000 employees and tremendous numbers of PhDs and lots of experience and lots of money. And so we weren't surprised to see some of it, but there was a lot of firefighting. Every problem, you know, every situation was truly an emergency in the front office and in the back office. They were administering a lot of very broken processes, very basic processes, and I saw a lot of silos. 
the purchasing people had their task, and they didn't want to really hear about anybody else's problem. They had their paperwork they had to administer and get it done that day, and that's pretty much what they wanted to do. There wasn't a lot of measurement or accountability or things that you typically see in most businesses, and there wasn't a lot of collaboration, as John mentioned. Sometimes, and many of you are in the logistics field, we call it supply chain now because I think it gives it a better name, but we were kind of recognizing, hey, you get the knuckle draggers out in the warehouse, right? So, I mean, that's the mentality that a lot of people have, and still to this day maintain a lot of, you know, in the logistics field, and fortunately we know and feel differently about it. So we had all that, and then there was this preconceived and subjectively determined solutions based on the field experts in terms of stockpiling. So as we did the walkthroughs and we talked to everybody, all the various folks, so there was, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 people that kind of came through at various times throughout the two days. We walked through the processes. What we ended up doing is saying, you know, we really need to step backward and flowchart all the things you do. It's not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination. Let's just get it down on paper. And that's where what John mentioned earlier was one of the biggest wins was just getting some of these very senior people that had been involved in operations for years to say, wow, it is broken, that is a mess, and it isn't even that hard to fix. We probably should have been listening to John all along. So that in itself was a big win. <laughs> so, you know, we applied some very basic problem-solving methodologies. Frankly, I don't think that we applied 2% of probably what we thought we were going to apply or what we think we're capable of probably applying to help this organization but we did apply some basic things, which is what we think they needed, and it was very successful. So we focused on some quick wins, and I know in our company we use the term, pick the low-hanging fruit. This was picking the fruit off the ground. We didn't have to climb up into the tree. I mean, literally, there was a lot of it, and, and you could pick it right there. And I don't mean to make it sound bad about the RC, but there was a lot of opportunity that you felt like, boy, if you do some basic negotiation things, and some pretty basic procurement processes, we can save you a lot of money, and that might help fund some of the things that you want to do for the future. So we did that, and most of all, I think we helped lend credibility to help John be able to confirm the things that he always wanted to do and knew were the right things to do, but really weren't getting everyone to partner together well on. The last thing I think we did is, is we walked away saying, we've got a few good start, but we're going to follow up with you, and we're going to make sure this doesn't just become the thing of the day. And so for the next four or five months, we met with them every month and said, did you follow up on your action item? Did you do what you say you were going to do? And are we making progress? And the last thing, and I think this is one that we'll all say in this relationship, and I think virtually every company struggles sometimes on this, you've got to keep measuring it and make sure you measure it if you really want to move it and have success in what it is you're trying to accomplish. Everyone say, oh, yeah, I know that, but it's hard to get everybody to do it. And when I go around, we do benchmarking all the time. So many companies, very advanced, multi-billion dollar companies, you talk to them about their logistics indicators, and they're just not there. You know, they're firefighting and running the seat of the pants, and they're doing a lot of the same things that the IRC was doing. So, John, how did it go? Extremely well. <laughs> <laughs> I'd said that there was sort of the unofficial and the official agenda. On both counts, it worked. It was the first time I'd ever seen on the follow-up question, wherefore that four or five months afterwards, the vice president of international programs, my boss, was asking me when the next teleconference was to follow up on actions that had been suggested. So that was a big win to start with. On the technical side, it's already been mentioned, it was not rocket science. But on the other hand, I'm kind of not making mistakes for this because quite often I see us taking a big step when we haven't actually understood the fundamentals. So I don't actually feel quite so bad about talking about fundamentals even in this particular forum. So we built the comfort levels and 
what we ended up working on was reducing the lead times on procurement, basically, as simple as that. Trying to break it into an emergency response where suppliers would agree to 72 hours X-Works and a longer period for non-emergency. So we'd moved most of our procurement for routinely purchased items away from transactional. Now in the past, and in fact it's Randy, a colleague of mine, you might be interested to know that three of the NGO people here have all worked together in the past, <laughs> um, which goes back to how does collaboration work in reality on the ground. That's how it works. We have been heavily funded in the past by the US government, and as many of you probably know, along with that comes a stack of regulations as to how you go about your procurement. So we built a whole set of regulations to avoid risk. Having been burned in the past, we built it in. Now what that ended up doing was not looking for what we could do. We just assumed we couldn't do it because it wasn't mentioned in the regs. And that was a comment this gentleman made from his marine days. So the idea was to move away from that. Look at what you can do. I mean, you look, there's quite a lot that can be done within the confines of those regulations. So to get to the point, we had been undertaking all of our procurement in a transactional sense. It was a three-bid at minimum process for everything but everything we bought and every time. So you know as well or better than I do how much time and effort and money that costs. The move was to go into supplier agreements, 12-month agreements, until we could get the expertise and the confidence to extend them. What we didn't want at that time was physical contingency stock. We don't have huge resources. There are redundancy, obsolescence. There's a cost involved with managing it. And quite frankly, at the time, the International Rescue Committee was more of a quite quick response as opposed to a rapid. So with a quite quick response, you do have a window to make an assessment and mobilize the resources that you need. I didn't feel that we needed these stocks at that time. The internal policies that we'd put in place, again, take their roots back to us being risk-averse and trying to remain within regulations. So it was almost a Band-Aid effect. The more signatures this piece of paper's got on it, the better it is. By fact, you know that we actually, you end up losing control, the signatures become meaningless, and you've spent a week waiting for the guy who's out in the field office. A simple one, introduce, and we tried this before, a catalog of what we routinely use so that people in the field are not messing around trying to figure out what the specifications are of what they want. Really small, but you can hold up a process by three weeks if you're trying to figure out exactly what you need. And then it was to introduce metrics to allow us to monitor and improve on various aspects of our activities. That actually, to be fair, has been the most difficult one to put in because I certainly underestimated the amount of time, effort, and money that it takes to institute these indicators and to monitor them and analyze them. So by the time it gets down to the field level, in that initial six months, I would say that it's virtually impossible for us to put it in. So at the moment, we're doing very simple indicators on only the time frames involved in our lead time. They're the only ones we're doing, but I'm very happy that we've even got those. So what I enjoyed most out of the whole thing was the ability of this team to bridge the disparate gaps. Now, silo mentality, it's funny to be talking about an internal situation with an external audience, but we were. 
very much silo. Finance was here, we've got different aspects of programs, we've got independent. And it was these guys basically coming in, and I, I suspect not understanding that, that they didn't tailor their discussion to anything. So it did hit the nerve across the board, and all sorts of people are going, mm hmm, yeah, that makes sense. So what did we manage to do? Order confirmation. If everything goes right, and please don't think that everything is hunky-dory now, it's not. But it is vastly better than it was. We at least now have the structure and the system in place for order confirmation within 24 hours. That's the internal process. That's not cutting corners, etc., etc. We have implemented these nine basic areas. I don't want to worry about this. This is slightly outdated now. But we lifted 85 to 90% of our spend through New York with these suppliers under contract. And to date, by and large, with the exception of Tsunami, which is what I'll bridge this with, these guys are meeting their obligations to us. We went into Tsunami, and as I said, we have built all of this on a quite quick response. I don't use that jokingly. I mean, it's a fairly clear way of doing. And in actual fact, IRC has probably never moved that number of people nor that amount of equipment and had them operational in a short space of time as they did in Bandache. Did it take a while? Yes, it did. Have a number. Other agencies did also. They stepped up to the mark. But what came back out of that then, which is my new challenge, which is the next time I'm going to partner with these guys, what next, is that I actually now have the mandate for a rapid response. And a rapid response in our context will take us back to pre-positioned, ready-to-go equipment and supplies. So having gone from, no, I don't want stockpiles, now I've got to go back and figure out, well, this actually is an appropriate use of them, what should I have, where do I locate it, and how are we going to cover the costs of it? Because the obsolescence and redundancy hasn't gone away. And gentleman in uniform is nodding there. He knows all about this. <laughs> um. So this will be the part that keeps you awake. I didn't do anything that was particularly difficult. We spent a couple of days. We facilitated some basic flowcharts. Raise your hand if you could do that. Couldn't you do that? It honestly, it is a very easy thing. And it doesn't take a whole lot of time and effort to make some of that commitment and to really help out. So for the last couple of pages before we wrap up, because um, our time's basically up, what I'm going to say is it doesn't take much to help. A small time commitment, two days, basically, is the time that we invested in this process. We didn't have to go through advanced training. They took us with what we knew and what we could offer today. We used already acquired skills. And in our particular case, it really didn't even cost anything because IRC said, you know, we want this service and we're going to pick up your expenses. They didn't pay us a consulting fee, or nor did we want one or expect one. But it really didn't cost anything. And I suspect in some of the cases with other organizations, it would be a similar thing. If they asked us to do it and they asked us to pay, would we do it? Absolutely. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a great payback personally and to your corporations to do it. I'm not a guy that's committed a lot of my life or a lot of my time or a lot of my money to it, but I felt like in a couple of days I made a very simple investment that I felt pretty good about. And it wasn't huge, but I felt like I actually accomplished something that was for the good of not only the IRC, but the people downstream that saved the tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars that then could put food in people's mouths and it could put clean water on their tables. You know, it's indirect, but it absolutely was something that I felt pretty good about. Inside of your corporations, John Olson didn't necessarily 
take his time or his money. Personally, I did. My corporation said, we support this. We think this is a good thing. We're more than happy to commit a little bit of your time because they feel good about their corporate social responsibility. Most of you put out annual reports in your corporations that talk about your social responsibility, if not having independent reports that talk about that, because there's investment groups that like to invest in corporations that are great social citizens. So it's good for you as a corporation as well. I also got some great networking benefits out of it. So this is what's in it for me, right? I got to meet folks like Jim and several others and Ludo and, and other people that I've been able to call when I'm doing my own business and say, I'd like to do some benchmarking with you or I'd like to help solve this problem. What are you doing? Having that connection is invaluable. And granted, some of you get it just through sitting in these meetings, in these forums. But when you go spend a couple of days and you eat every meal and you work every hour with a guy like Jim Molson, I have a relationship that I can call on any time. And so it's a small thing, but it's really invaluable and it's been a great use for me. And the last one, you know, it is a good exposure. It plays well inside my corporation. They love the fact that we as Intel Corporation are supporting this sort of thing. Every employee saying, gosh, I didn't really know. I know Intel Foundation gives a lot of money, but I didn't really know that we made the kind of commitment to go out and truly help people when they need it. We see a little bit of the stuff around the hurricanes and that sort of thing, but we didn't see it well. And, you know, when I put it on my annual review, does it play well? Absolutely. So, you know, I get some playback out of it. I think IRC gets some good things out of it. And, you know, it was just an all-around, it's a win-win situation. You know, I think it's something to think about getting involved. Any of you can commit a day or two or a few hours to help out on some of these things. And if I were to listen to what Gail described in her presentation and what Adele does, and they say, you know, we should probably get together. You know, that's the kind of marriage that Fritz or probably others can help facilitate. That's the kind of things that we're looking for and the kind of help that I think these organizations need and really, really appreciate. So with that. Yeah, I think yeah, just to reinforce the, the, the how pivotal, it's not a selling job, I promise you. I have been accused of this before. But Fritz did play a pivotal role in really sifting through what I wanted into what was manageable and then finding the appropriate people to come in and deal with a finite problem that could have quick responses to it. So. My thanks to both parties involved in this particular case. We have a few minutes for questions. Maybe I'll ask the first one, which is, John Ricard, to you. You took a risk by inviting the private sector in and exposing your weaknesses to an external audience, as you said. What would encourage other NGOs to do that? John spoke very eloquently about the benefits of volunteering, but you know, there's the other side to it in the partnership. You know, how do you get an NGO to open its kimono, so to speak? <laughs> I suspect you have to be a little bit careful because, um, to be honest, there's a very good atmosphere generally in the IRC. The risk, to me, was not so great. It's personally uncomfortable to have to admit that I haven't managed to get this message across somehow. To other agencies, I'd say it's worth doing, especially if you have a problem that you know exists. Then the risk is not so bad, because everybody is part of that problem. We all belong, in theory, we all belong to the same team. Therefore, it's incumbent on us, even though I'm director of logistics, to fix it. So. OK, any other questions? Go ahead. I'll spare my name this time. So the question I have is, about tools and uh, that were used as part of this process. Did you have to do any investment 
on developing new tools or what you had already internally was enough and just through the process and mapping you were able to get the results that you are presenting today? Well, I upgraded my version of Excel. Uh, no, no. Um, the, the, the solutions that were arrived at were within the resources that we had. There was no need for us to go out and find additional resources for tools. Flip charts, pens, you know, got most of it done. Yes. I just want to say, keep doing it, keep disconnecting happen, because we're up against a, a, a world that's hugely dysfunctional, and frankly, the NGOs don't have the resources on their own, and for us to try and go about this separately, corporates doing their bit in one place and NGOs doing their bit in another place, is ludicrous when we can actually partner in ways that are synergistic and um, one plus one equals a great deal more than two. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to both of you. You've been listening to a presentation from the Disruption Management Seminar produced by the Center for Social Innovation and held at Stanford, California, September 8, 2005. For more practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review at www.ssireview.com. The series producer for this program is Bernadette Clavier. Post-production audio engineering by Jay Yeary. My name is Doug Kay, and I hope you'll join me next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.